Genesis 47, we're going to look at a message tonight called Blessing in Egypt. Blessing in Egypt. When the Lord originally called Abram to go forth from his country, from his relatives, from his father's house to the land which God would show him, he said these words, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray. Father, as we get into Genesis 47, and we see Jacob now come to Egypt, and how you multiplied the nation that you promised to bless and multiply as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. That's going to happen in a time when uh, they're in a foreign land. And we, we pray that in times of stretching and persecution and difficulty in our own lives, that we will, we will grow, that, that the fruit of our lives will increase. We're grateful for every precious person that's here tonight, and we pray as we lay this time of Bible study now at your feet that you would open our ears, open our eyes. Paul prays, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, in Ephesians 1. That's what we want to do, Lord. We want to open our hearts wide to receive the implanted word, the seed of the word of God. This is how we get nourished, equipped. Uh, We stay healthy as Christians, so let that sound doctrine, the word of God that's alive and profitable, to minister to your people tonight and draw people closer to you. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're looking at blessing in Egypt. Here's the first verse. Genesis 47, verse 1 says, Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men among his brothers, we don't know which five, but five of his brothers, and he presented them to Pharaoh. Now Joseph is kind of this rare breed, and we've been watching this young man who now is somewhere around 40 years old. He was sold into slavery at 17, And now he is 40, so you could say he is a man who has matured, and he's got a a good amount of life experience, but he's got a good amount of, obviously, spiritual experience, and he has watched God favor him through good times and bad times. And he has been a man that's been stretched and watched the faithfulness of God. And he has made some preparations for his family as his family moved into the, they were traveling, and they first were presented to him. Uh, he had given them some things to do. And this is uh, Genesis 46, look at verse uh, 29. Joseph prepared his chariot, he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a long time. That was that beautiful reunion and restoration of that relationship. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. I can go to heaven now, right? But he's going to live 17 more years. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who were in the land of Canaan, that's going to become the land of Israel, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, 
For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now I pointed out that was the la- end of last time that we were together. And I believe that Joseph is doing something very strategic for his family, whether he knows all the reasons or not. But they're going to live in the fertile place of Goshen in a time of famine. And it's going to keep them protected and purified. And remember, this family, as we looked at the numbers, there are only about 70 people right now. And when they leave Egypt, some 430 years later, they are going to be over 2 million people. So they are going to greatly multiply in this land. And one of the things that God wants to do is preserve the line to the Messiah. So this is going to ensure their protection. Joseph, some people have called him a rare combination and even asked whether or not it's possible to be a saint and a politician at the same time. (laughs) Have you ever (laughs) asked a question like that? Is it possible to be a Christian and someone involved in politics? Some of you may know that we have a pastor on our own uh, board here in the city of Corona. And uh, I will tell you this, Randy Fox, who is a very good man and a longtime pastor in the city of Orange. In fact, he's pastored a church in the city of Orange, though he's lived in Corona. And I think he just now is moving on from that pastorate. And it's been close to three decades now. He's been faithful to this little congregation in the city of Orange. And he's been, he entered into the, into the political realm. And if you've ever been to any of those meetings in the city, you know that Randy has caught some heat from people for his stands as a Christian. And he's not ashamed to be a Christian, but he's taken some heat for his beliefs. And he just says, you know, his responses have been quite impressive. He's kind of just said, I'm really glad that you know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I make the decisions I make because of the Bible and what I believe. That's really cool that you know that. (laughs) His responses have been, you know... Anyway, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to tell you what sometimes my responses might have been in those situations, but... Better to stay silent sometimes. It may be as difficult for a man to be godly and a politician, says one writer. This is James Boyce. As it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But it is not impossible. Now I know that this room is probably, you know, you you guys may not be in politics, but a lot of you are in business. And business sometimes brings up some of the same challenges that come up in the political world. Because in business, when you're running a business or you're part of corporate America or wherever you may work, you're dealing with ideas and stresses and deadlines and challenges. And there's questions that come up about your morality and your behavior in a company. And the question that I think, I think a lot of Christians either ask out loud or quietly in their heart is, can I be a Christian at my company? Is it possible for me to retain my standards? You know, we've been talking on Sunday mornings. We're doing a whole series in Titus on grace and godliness. And I've told you that godliness can be defined as a God-centered life or a God-dominated life. And by the way, that doesn't end when you hit the doors on Sunday. You all know that, right? Your biggest challenge will not be whether or not you can be a Christian inside these walls, although I know some of you are challenged by that when you meet certain people inside these walls. I'm just kidding. That was just a joke. (laughs) But, But when you go outside into that world and you're on the freeway and you're dealing with your company and maybe you have a challenging boss or, 
you know, uh, whatever the different things that you face. And I'll just say this to you, just so you know that I understand your dilemma. I worked in corporate America for many years myself. In fact, I was at the same company for a decade. We dealt in the realm of the Fortune 500. I made presentations to, you know, executives and that kind of stuff. I lived in that world. And in fact, while I was doing that, I pastored the church for 18 months and worked that job. So I know what it's like. And I was the I was the pastor at the company. So whenever debates were happening about moral issues of the day, you know, of course, Pastor Michael chimed in and um, it was it was really interesting. And I think God allowed me to have favor in that company and to allow my voice to be heard. But. I want to ask a question, and and I think it's a question that we all face, and if we're going to be real tonight, the question is, can I take my Christianity to my company? Can I take my Christianity to my community? Can I take my Christianity to my country? Can I take it to hobbies I do? Should it go everywhere? And, and, and maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it because that shouldn't, it shouldn't be, can you take it there? It's, the question is, are you a Christian? <laughs> if you're a Christian, how can you help but having that spill over to every area of your life? You can't dichotomize your Christian life, folks. You can't. You need to be a Christian where you are. Now, I don't think that that means that you need to be reading your Bible at your desk when you're supposed to be working. In fact, I know it doesn't mean that. But, I, but what it does mean is that you have the same integrity, the same values, the same godliness that you are learning about in Scripture that you take it out into the world. Otherwise, we're not going to be salt and light in this world. Amen? Amen? If we, start, if we start compromising in the world, we're going to be in trouble. And Joseph is the answer to the question, can a man be a saint and a politician or even a businessman? And the answer to that question is, look at Joseph. Now, we're going to hear some stuff about Joseph um, in this chapter that some people wrestle with a little bit. We'll talk about that. But um, here, here's a quote that I thought was really good. This writer said, shrewdness... By the way, to be shrewd is to use your wit and intelligence to be successful. Shrewdness is not alien to holiness. You can be shrewd and wise and good at what you do, whether it's business or even politics, and not compromise your holiness. Now, I know that that sometimes can feel like a little bit of a balancing act to us, but I think it's quite possible, and I think Joseph is an example of that. But notice that Joseph is shrewd. He knows what Pharaoh is going to ask. He knows how to protect his family. So he's kind of setting this up. And he told his brothers, look, when you get presented before him, when dad, when you get presented before Pharaoh, emphasize that you guys are shepherds. And I think this is going to help with our location in the land of Goshen. Jesus told a story about a shrewd steward. And he wasn't, uh, Jesus is not complimenting the shrewd steward in the story. The one who compliments him is his own boss. But Jesus uses the illustration. This is Luke 16, 8, and he says, his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. The word in Greek for shrewdly can be defined as prudently, sensibly, wisely. It's the idea of practical wisdom with understanding according to insight. In fact, I would say that Jesus was shrewd at times, don't you think? I mean, when he, when he set down or put people in their place, he was wise. He used wise language. He used stories. 
uh, to put people often in their place. The shrewd steward here, he acted shrewdly. And then he says, for the sons of this age, the world, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. What he means by that is that when it comes to the gospel, we never compromise, but we should be wise about how we win people. We should be strategic. We should be thinking ahead. We should be thinking about how can we win our community? How can we make inroads into this place and that place with the message of the gospel? Because we truly believe it is a life-saving, life-transforming message, do we not? But we have open doors in this community. We have open doors on radio sometimes. And I'll tell you what, there's not a lack of open doors quite often, but there's certainly a lack of people who are willing to walk through them. And I just want you to think about that for a second. There's open doors everywhere. Jesus said the fields are what? They're white unto harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that will send out more What? Workers into the harvest field. Jesus didn't say, pray that the gospel will, meet, will be more effective. Look, the gospel is already imbued with God's power. Amen. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the dunamis of God. The issue is not the power of the gospel. The issue is whether or not we're willing to share it. The issue is not the power of the gospel or God's willingness to meet us where we step out. The, the issue is whether or not we're willing to be shrewd about what really, really matters. Well, Pharaoh said to his brothers in this formal presentation to the Pharaoh, remember the Pharaoh, you know, if you've ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments, I keep bringing it up in our <laughs> study on Thursday morning, and I, there's kind of a mixed crowd. I say, Yul Brenner, Charlton Heston! About half the crowd, yeah, yeah, yeah. Half the crowd, mm. What are you talking about? I understand, sort of, kind of. Watch the movie, so you... <laughs> anyway. Well, if you ever saw scenes from that movie, you know the Pharaoh had people all around him. He had multitudes of servants. He had people fanning him. He had gold, a gold chair, and people came up and gave him gifts and everything. It was a whole to-do. And here... There's some sort of formal presentation. The Pharaoh is meeting Joseph's brothers and he says to them, what's his first question? Look at verse three. What is what? <laughs> what's your occupation? Do, have you noticed that that seems to be the first question of a lot of people when you meet them? They want to know what you do. What do you do for a living? Um, I'm not sure that what I do for a living defines me all the time, Right? I mean, when Paul was making a tent, he might say, well, what I do to make money is I make tents. But who I am is much more than tent making. Amen? And who you are is much more than how you make an income. You know, some of us have the privilege to be in full-time ministry, but uh, even for most of our pastors, talk to our pastors afterwards and find out their stories. I think the bulk of our pastors worked for a long time in the secular world before ever going into full-time paid ministry we were in full-time ministry <laughs> we just weren't paid for it <laughs> so here's the idea so what's your occupation and i will just say this to you when someone's asking you might say well this is what i do to make a living but this is who i am do you want to know who i am then ask me about what my favorite team is then you'll know no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> see what really defines me is my relationship with the living God. 
Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything that I am. Now, I don't always walk into rooms and announce that, but if you get to know me after a little bit of time, you're going to find out who my Savior is and who my Lord is. Well, he says, what do you do? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. Now, you can imagine Joseph, you know, he's coached his brothers a little bit. Good, good, good answer. That's exactly what I told you. Good one. And then they said, and they said, verse 4, to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. <laughs> can you feel Joseph saying, no, nothing extra, please. Have you ever given someone to share information? Okay, this is what you are to say. Let me do the rest of the talking. And then they, the opening line seems to sit well, and then they keep going like, no, no. They keep talking. They said, we've come to sojourn in the land and there's no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. (laughs) You have to imagine Pharaoh going, "Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. So they added a little something there, but Pharaoh was gracious and quick to oblige. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. This is good. The land of Egypt, notice, is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, among your brothers, then put them in charge of my livestock. Not only does the Pharaoh say, hey, they can have the best of the land, and that's something that he did promise in the previous chapter, and he makes good on that. But he says, hey, if your brothers are good at this thing, they can watch over the royal livestock too, even offers them employment. Can you believe it? That's a blessing, right? And I think the Pharaoh is saying, look, if your brothers are anything like you, everything you touch multiplies. Everything you seem to put your hand to, you have the favor of this God. So if your brothers are anything like you, I want to hire them too. You can see Pharaoh's position, right? And I think some bosses who see a good Christian man or woman of integrity and the hand of God is upon them and you bring that blessing into a company, I think a wise boss, even if they're not a Christian, might say, if there's more like you, bring them to the company. I'll put them in charge of the cash register because I know you Christians have something called a commandment. (laughs) Thou shall not steal. All owners of companies know that one. So they appreciate people who take that seriously. Amen? (laughs) All right, so he had been blessed in every uh, way. He says Joseph's virtually boundless favor was extended to Jacob's family. Unbelievably, in addition to keeping his initial promise of the best of the land, you can write down 4518, Pharaoh even offered the brothers employment as superintendents of the royal cattle. So things were going well. And then next, in this formal presentation, Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh. Now the brothers, you know, Pharaoh initiated, right? What's your occupation? Nice to meet your brothers. But notice now that the aged Jacob or Israel comes in. He's presented to Pharaoh in some formal way. And notice what happens next. You would expect that maybe now... And this is kind of interesting to think about. You have the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh, meeting the leader of Israel, Jacob. This is quite an interesting moment when you think about the implications of what this means and even the future history of these two countries. 
And it is Jacob who takes the lead. And you might be surprised, but before the Pharaoh, by the way, the Pharaoh was thought to be a god. They thought he was a god-man in some sense. They said he was the incarnate son of Ra, the sun god. So they put a very high you know, position upon him. But it is Jacob who takes the lead, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. See that word blessed there in your Bible? That word blessed is an interesting word because it's a word that means to invoke the favor of God upon someone. Now, we know that uh, we say God bless you for a number of reasons. Often when we sneeze, we say to somebody, God bless you. How many of you sneeze in threes or fours? Anybody? All right. Multiple people. So we wait till you're done because you go, <laughs> right. Right? We don't want us to try to fit in a God bless you every time, you know. I don't even know what the origin of that is. I've heard some people say that they say when you sneeze, you lose, what is it? A, your heart stops. <laughs> well, that's a good reason. <laughs> May your heart start again. God bless you, right? Are you, are you troubled sometimes when people don't say it when you sneeze? Okay. You sneeze and you're like... <laughs> What do you want, my heart to stop? <laughs> What's wrong with you people? But, but that's almost said is, that's a cultural thing almost, you know. How about, how about, when are the other times you say God bless you to people? You might uh, send them a text and you say, now we have emojis for everything. Is that what they're called? Emojis? <laughs> is it the prayer hands now? You don't even need to spell it out anymore. I'd, I'd be really careful with that. But anyway, <laughs> I heard a Bible's coming out. Did you guys hear that? The emoji, the emoji Bible. I don't even know what to say about that, so I'll just leave that alone. But Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, I'm, I'm going to assume for the moment that Pharaoh is a pagan ruler, especially if he's thought to be the embodiment of the sun god Ra. Why in the world would Jacob bless this man? Do you know that if you really mean what you say, when you say God bless you to somebody, do you know that that shouldn't be just taken lightly? In fact, you should never use God's name lightly. Never. So if you're going to say God bless you to somebody, you know, that really has more power than you might think. Because you're invoking the name of the true God of the Bible upon someone. And I think when you're doing it with that good intention, it's wonderful to ask God to bless somebody. And I don't think that it just applies to non-Christians, by the, or to Christians, but I think it can apply to non-Christians. In fact, Paul says, when you're persecuted, you should what? Bless. Well, how, do you, how do you bless someone when you're being persecuted? These are some of the toughest verses in the Bible. Read Romans 12 again and you'll see some very challenging information where it says that when you're persecuted, you should bless. I don't know about you, but I find it very hard when being persecuted to say, oh, God bless you, sir, ma'am. I told a story, it wasn't um, probably that long ago, but some of you may not have heard it. I did a memorial service for a fire chief that had passed away, and we're in a very uh, extravagant um, 
sanctuary. We're at a mortuary. And people were coming back by the casket and they were paying respects. And, you know, oftentimes as a pastor, you'll hear, nice, nice message, pastor. Thank you for being here, pastor. We appreciate it. But this little old man came by me and he said, uh, I just want to let you know I didn't come here to hear your Sunday sermon. I came here to hear about my friend here. I didn't come here. If I wanted to hear your Sunday sermon, we're standing by the casket, by the way. There's a bunch of people lined up. If I wanted to hear your Sunday sermon, I would come to the church. But I <laughs> That's pretty much how it sounded at the end. <laughs> and somehow, out of my mouth came, well, God bless you, sir. I have no idea where that came from. Have you ever had that happen to you? You're like, Lord, thank you, because I don't even know <laughs> where that came from. But well, it came from heaven. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Some would say that what the blessing of Jacob would be something like this. Long live the king in the ancient world. That certainly was something that uh, people would do. Long live the king. Maybe just wishing him a long life. But I'll tell you what. In Hebrew culture, that's not the idea of blessing. When, if you're going to bless someone, you would invoke the name of the living God, and you wouldn't do it lightly. When Jesus was ascending in Luke 24, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. The word for bless in uh, Greek is eulageo. It's where we get the idea of eulogize or a eulogy. And when you bless someone and you do a eulogy at a memorial service, what you're doing is you're speaking well of them. And so to bless is to want the best. You might want to write that down if you're a note taker. To bless, you want the best for somebody. And sometimes it's hard to pray that. It's easy to pray blessings on loved ones, but it's hard when you might struggle with, with what somebody believes or how they act. Blessed in Hebrew is Barak. It's translated into English as B-A-R-A-K or B-E-R-A-C-H. It literally means the sun covered. It speaks of an open hand to cover. The word means to bend the knees, to kneel down. You can think of a son or a daughter who kneels before a patriarch and that patriarch lays the hand on that child or grandchild and you give a blessing. In Hebrew culture, this is what patriarchs did, especially if they thought they were dying. They would call the family in and they would extend hands to bless children and grandchildren and sometimes prophesy over them. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see Jacob uh, do this very thing before he dies. The high priest Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, Leviticus 9.22. Hebrews 7.7 7 is an interesting verse because it says, without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Hebrews 7.7, 7, without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Context is Abram gets blessed by Melchizedek. Some people believe that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus Christ. Some people say that he is a Christ-type figure like a like in type or shadow, but not. But he was literally a king of that time. And uh, I don't think it matters for this discussion. But here's what we do know. We know that the lesser is always blessed by the greater. And so it's kind of interesting to think about with all the pomp and circumstance and gold and alabaster cups and fans and grapes and servants that it is the old aged 
patriarch that blesses the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh doesn't seem to take exception to it. He doesn't seem to argue with it. And Jacob gives the blessing. And I guess one of the things I would just say that's pretty obvious is the only way you can give a blessing is if you have one to give. I don't know what Pharaoh could offer Jacob other than some pragmatic things which he had done. He had sent wagons, grain. He had given him traveling uh, mercies, certainly. He had given him a place in the land of Egypt. In fact, he's just extended the best of the land. Certainly, there's been practical blessings that you'd say. But, but Pharaoh had really nothing to offer Jacob, spiritually speaking. The one who had something to offer was Jacob to the Pharaoh. And here's my question for you tonight. Here's an application. What do you have to give tonight to those around you in the world? If you're going to give a blessing, the only way you can truly give a blessing to someone is to tell them the good news about the one who is the blesser or the blessed. Amen? Amen. The only way you can truly extend a blessing is if you have one to give. If you know God. If you know the power of the gospel and the power of the risen Lord and he's in your life. And one of the reasons why we fail sometimes to give blessings is because we're not staying close enough to the Lord. I was listening to Robert Jeffers this morning and he was talking about some basics in the Christian life. He said, look, if you are feeling like carnality is getting the best of you right now and you feel like you're in compromise and carnality, here's a very simple recipe. Please listen if this applies to you. He said, change your diet and start to exercise. And he wasn't talking about physical things, although the parallels are true. You change your diet, you change what you eat. If you haven't been reading your Bible, start reading it again. And then Robert Jeffers said something surprising. He said, you know what? I eat broccoli at every meal. Like every meal? Every meal. I don't know why he does that. I think broccoli every other day is probably sufficient. Would you not agree? But anyway, I don't know if his doctor recommended it. Broccoli at every meal. And he said, look, I don't like broccoli. I eat it because it's good for me. He said, and even over the years of eating it, I haven't even acquired a taste for broccoli. But he said, I've noticed something about the Word of God. The more I take it in, the sweeter it becomes. And then he said something else. He said, look, exercise, diet and exercise. He said, look, when you, when you, when you are going to exercise, sometimes when it comes to diet and exercise, here's, here's our, our kind of response to these types of things. We say, I don't. Do you hear it coming, folks? I don't feel like it. You know how many things I do during the week that I don't feel like doing? Every time my body hears that I'm thinking about exercise, I, think, I hear things, voices from within saying, No! What are you thinking? Your knees hurt. You're old. <laughs> but you know what happens? Every time I start to exercise, I start to feel good because endorphins start happening and stuff. And the difference between a very poor meal, like when I get hungry, I have to confess, burritos always sound really good to me. So do double cheeseburgers and stacks of pancakes and pizza and pasta. And anybody hungry out there? All right, I'll stop. <laughs> but... 
If I go and get a smoothie or eat a salad, I, here's what happens. I feel much better. Now, when I'm eating the burrito, it usually feels better than the salad. But the, but the after effects are positive in healthy eating and exercise. Here's, here's an application. If you don't exercise your spiritual gifts, I want you to think about exercise now with spiritual gifts. If you're not serving, it's quite easy to go towards carnality. You've got to read your Bible and serve because serving gives you a reason to stay accountable, a reason to really be here. You should come here because you want to be fed, no doubt, but you should come here to serve as well. Amen? So if you're serving in some capacity, it keeps you more accountable and you're exercising your spiritual gift. And by the way, a lot of the English translations of the Bible say that very thing about spiritual gifts. It says, if you have a gift, exercise it. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, don't neglect your spiritual gift. You neglect exercise, you get flabby and sometimes a little overweight. But if you eat right and exercise, you're usually going to stay in the right shape. And how much more spiritually, folks, if you do nothing, you're going to have nothing to give. All it takes to drift is to do nothing. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, talks about people who drift. And the illustration has been given before, but I've been out on the water at Newport Beach before and sitting on a surfboard. I'm really good at sitting on them now. Just, just try to look cool. I didn't realize how hard paddling was until I didn't surf for 20 years. And then I, I went into the... So my wife and I got a beach house several years ago. And I go, I think I'm going to surf. So I went into one of those little rental shops and I picked out a surfboard and she, and she goes, she goes, you want that one? And she started laughing at me. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? It's a surfboard. But she was like, okay. Anyway, so I went out there and I didn't realize how much work it, you know, you just have these delusions of grandeur. Like, I'm going to catch a wave. I'll be sitting on top of the world. (laughs) You're singing the songs and everything. And then you get out in the water. Oh, man, just the waves are like, you know, half a foot. And I'm... But then, have you ever noticed you look back and, okay, let's say it's Tower 32, and then you kind of focus on the water, you're looking for fins <laughs> for a while. And then you look back and you've drifted a long way, and you're like, I got a paddle coming. Either that or I got to catch one of these things, which I'm not sure how to do anymore. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Jesus said, it's all right. I understand. Freely you have received, freely give. Matthew 10, 8. In Acts 3, there's the uh, lame beggar at the beautiful gate begging for alms. Peter says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Jesus went about doing good. Paul, quoting Jesus, said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In 1 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. 1 Peter 3, 9. 
For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit the blessing. We are blessed people. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we are supposed to give the blessing even to those that we struggle with. But if you have not invested in your spiritual life, you have very little to give and you're not going to be apt to be as bold or to speak the word or to get engaged with your spiritual gifts. But Jacob had a blessing to give and I think partly because Jacob was certainly um, overwhelmed by how God, how good God had been to him. Lifting up his hands, says one writer, at the full height of his stature without one preliminary word of salutation or gesture of compliment to the king, the old man pours out his soul in prayer, asking God's blessing on the royal head and in God's name pronouncing the customary blessing of Abraham's house and seed. What did he say? What did he pray? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. This would come out later in the book of Numbers. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Did he pray that? Look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 48. Look at verse 14. As Israel is now getting ready to die, and he would live another 17 years as we learn, Israel 48.14 stretched out his hand. 48.14. He stretched out his, hand, his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, his left hand on Manasseh's head. These are Joseph's sons. Crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What did he say to Pharaoh? I think we have a pretty good idea, don't we? I think he called, I think he invoked, I think he called upon the name of the living God and I think he prayed over the Pharaoh. And I wonder what kind of boldness we would have. I think if we, would we be dazzled by the gold and the alabaster cups and the servants? Or would we say, this man is just a man. That's all he is. He may be called the Pharaoh, but he's just a man and he needs the living God just like anybody else does. Amen? See, we Christians, we should be a little bit more bold. We should not be impressed with the world. Let me ask you, what can the world really give us? Do you know in Isaiah chapter 19, and you can just write this down for your notes. Don't have time to go there. Isaiah chapter 19. Uh, God calls Egypt my people. Some people think that that's day of the Lord, last day stuff. But there's some evidence that throughout the history of Egypt, there was a turning to monotheism, to the one God, even though a lot of them did not want to admit it, that there was something happened in the land of Egypt. Could it be, could it go back to a time when a man named Jacob or Israel blessed the Pharaoh? Could it be the influence of Joseph in the land of Egypt? Could it be that your company would change, your, your family would change, your community would change if you just would say, Lord, use me here. I'm not going to make false distinctions between Sunday and Wednesday afternoon or wherever I am. Use me. The Pharaoh said to Jacob, <laughs> to Jacob, <laughs> Jacob, Yaakov, verse 8, he said, how old are you, dude? That's a loose translation, but he said, 
How many years have you lived? Now, sometimes what would happen in these cultures is that the older would autom- automatically bless the younger. Maybe that's part of the reason why Pharaoh acquiesced. But Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning, New King James NIV pilgrimage, are 130. I'm 130 years old. By the way, the Egyptians, in the Egyptian literature, they said the ideal old age was 110. How many of you are hoping that that would be the ideal old age, 110? Well, anyway, he's 130. But notice what he says. He says, the, the, the 130 years have been few and unpleasant. <laughs> the NIV says, few and difficult. Even though uh, God's done incredible things in Jacob's life, he still, he still kind of captures his life as few years and unpleasant years. He didn't, he, he didn't know how long he was going to live, but he didn't think he was going to make it to the years of Abraham and Isaac. These have been difficult days, nor have they attained the years of my father's lived during the days of sojourning. Jacob describes himself as a pilgrim passing through and he says my days have been difficult think about his difficult days he ran from his brother Esau ran to Haran he had to deal with Uncle Laban and Uncle Laban lied to him and ripped him off and that was a hard 20 years he had his pain his share of pain and difficulty and he was often a wanderer he uh, had to flee Mesopotamia deal with the Laban's deception. His daughter Dinah was raped. His two sons ended, ended up killing every male that was connected with the perpetrator. He lost his beloved Rachel as she gave birth to Benjamin. Um, he thought he had lost his eldest son, Joseph, probably his favorite. So many things that went on in his life. But he described himself as a pilgrim. And even if your life's been difficult, look, the best is still yet to come. Amen. So he, he had had tough times, but he, he said, look, I, I'm still going to give the blessing. And this is verse 10. Jacob, double blessing. Now he blessed Pharaoh and he went out of his presence. They, he shared. They went back and forth. And Jacob gave the blessing. And so Joseph settled, verse 11, his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, this is the, uh, the land of Ramses is the later name for the area of Goshen. Ramses is the name that's used for the Pharaoh in that famous film I mentioned earlier. As Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father, verse 12, and his brothers, all his father's household with food, according to their little ones, however many was in the house. There was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh had to be a pretty happy camper with Joseph. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. And Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. And they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year, verse 18, had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my lords. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. 
Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us uh, and our land for food. And we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. This is now selling themselves into servitude to, to the Pharaoh to survive. So give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph, verse 20, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon the land. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. So Joseph nationalized the land, uh, just to pause here after 22, and the livestock, and the Egyptians became tenant farmers, something known as Smurfs. I'm just kidding. It's... It's actually serfs, S-E-R-F-S, but I thought after that long reading you might need a little bit of attempted humor. Anyway, the Pharaoh was very happy with what Joseph was doing, and incredibly, the people are going to be happy too. You have to remember that in famine-like conditions, when there's nothing left, the people didn't really care if they owned a pink slip for the land. What they cared about is where their next meal was coming from. So here's Joseph's shrewdness again, and he's, he's buying up stuff for the Pharaoh. The people are still working the land, but basically now they are tenant farmers to the Pharaoh. What's more, Joseph said to the people, 23, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you that you may sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your household and ask for your little ones as food for your little ones. So they they said, notice how grateful they are. They said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, according to the time this was written, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priest did not become the Pharaoh. So Pharaoh basically got 20%. Flat tax, if you will. Now, if you look at this, some people have written on this and they say, well, Joseph, is, he's not being very nice. Joseph is not living in a Western capitalistic society, folks. He is a viceroy for the Egypt. And you could say he was being shrewd. He wasn't mistreating the people, but Pharaoh was definitely gaining from what was happening. And some people have even said that Maybe the slavery in Egypt, a book that came out many decades ago, the slavery of the Hebrews to the Egyptians is God's payback for what Joseph did here. No, it's not. That's ridiculous. Joseph is not, was not really doing anything wrong other than the people had, had stuff to trade and this is kind of how it was and people would sell themselves into servitude to pay off debts and stuff like that. And this is what occurred. One writer says, Joseph's actions cannot be measured by the moral standards that the Hebrew Bible, especially the prophetic tradition, has inculcated in Western civilization. This is uh, Nahum Sarna. Rather, they must be judged in the context of ancient Near Eastern world, the ancient Near, Near Eastern world, by whose norms Joseph emerges here as a highly admirable model of a shrewd, successful administrator. Nonetheless, a moral judgment on the situation is subtly introduced into the narrative by shifting the onus of responsibility for the fate of the peasants from Joseph to the Egyptians themselves. The peasants initiate the idea of their own enslavement, verse 19, 
and even express gratitude when it's implemented. They were not upset with Joseph. And so now the contrast between the people of Egypt, their situation, and the people of Israel, and I'll just say this to you. If you add up the tax that you pay right now between sales tax and tariffs and what you pay to the feds and the state, I think that most of you would be happy with the 20% tax rate, don't you? I know people have been trying to push the flat tax rate and all that, but here's the contrast. Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen. We see what was happening with the Egyptians. Now here's the Hebrews. And they acquired, while everyone was selling to Pharaoh, they, Israel, acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. They acquired, they became numerous. In the book of Exodus, the very next book, they are so fruitful and increase greatly that the Pharaoh that did not know Joseph raises up and he wants to destroy them because he's fearful of their multiplication. They've grown so much. They've prospered in the land of Egypt. Do you know that conservative estimates right now of the number of Christians in China are at least 100 million? There are Christian organizations that are saying there are 200, no, not, I don't think it's million. Is it millions? Yeah, it is millions. There are about 200 million Christians in China right now. Under communist governments and persecution, the church is flourishing. Where do you grow the most? When everything is cool and easy and laxed in your life? No. And, and even though there was kind of a cushy period of time for a little bit, they actually grew in a time of persecution in the land of Egypt, grew to huge numbers. Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, John 15, 2, he, my father, takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may, what? Bear more fruit. Anybody being pruned lately? It hurts to be pruned, doesn't it? Uh, those who are work in this area, they, there's some things they call the, what is it called, the suckers? The branches that try to suck the life out of the plant, they have to actually cut off the suckers. I'm not joking when I say this. And uh, this is how your Christian life is. You gotta, some things have to be cut away that are sucking the life out of you. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, 28. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Do you think he could have imagined another 17 years of life in the land of Egypt. And by the way, we have nothing that it was hard. I think he got to kick back and enjoy his family. And there was actually growth in this time of his life. He got to see incredible stuff before his eyes in the land of Goshen. And when the time of Israel to die drew near, you know, unless the Lord Jesus comes in our lifetime, everybody has this appointment. And, you know, I don't think that anybody in this room is going to make it to 147. So our years on this planet are not that long. And Jacob, this is very rare in the Bible, by the way, when, when the Bible speaks of people dying, it says, and he rested with his fathers. There's not a lot of detail given in a lot of death situations. Some, but not a lot. But here we're going to see a deathbed experience. This closes the chapter. The time for Israel to die drew near. This is Jacob with his new name. And he called his son Joseph and he said to him, Please, if I found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please, here's his deathbed request, please 
Do not bury me in Egypt. And he made him take an ancient oath. We saw this way back when Abraham was uh, sending out Eleazar. And Lynn, you reminded me way back in that study, before I could say the word, because the study was over, that Eleazar actually means God is my help, which I think is beautiful. And Eleazar was sent out by Abram, Abraham, and he'd taken an oath, and the grabbing of the thigh was an oath on the future posterity of a family. You swear on my future children that you will do as I've instructed. And so here's what happens. He says, please don't bury me in Egypt, verse 30. But when I lie down, if you have the NIV, it says, when I rest with my fathers, you shall carry me, that is my body, out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, Joseph said, I will do as you have said. You know, he's getting ready to die. And as he's getting ready to die, he says, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Move my remains to the promised land. Why would he say that? Why would he care? Because this, my friends, is a statement of faith. It's a belief that the God who promised that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would fulfill that promise. And by the way, to be gathered to your fathers or to rest with your fathers is language which many scholars say doesn't just speak of your burial site. To be gathered to your people means to go to be with them. David said, I can't be with him. He can't, that child that died can't be with me. I will go, what? To be with him. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Here's a good illustration. I heard this from another teacher. He said, look, when your body gets old, it's kind of like, think about, think of it this way. It's kind of like when you're driving a car and let's say that you're, you total your car. Some of you can really relate to this. You've totaled a car. So it goes off to the junkyard and it, you have to discard that car. But let's say you walk away from the accident, your car is totaled, but you're okay, but your car goes to the junkyard and your car is gone. It's totaled, unsalvageable. That's what's going to happen one day with your body. Your body is going to, not the junkyard, but it's, it's going to a place of rest. And you will be gathered to your people. You're going to walk away from your body one day. To be absent from your body that's what the, the verse says. We quote it all the time. You're going to be absent from your body one day. You're walking away from the car, baby. And you're going to be present where? With the Lord. That's what it means to be absent from the body. Is to be, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be present with the Lord. You're just going to get a new car. Amen? Ten. Fast comfortable sleek <laughs> all right we'll stop even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh job 19:26 i shall see god i know that my redeemer lives i know he lives and he said swear to me so he swore to him and then israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. If you want to cross-reference Hebrews 11.21 in the great hall of faith, don't have time there to go there. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning as he leaned on the top of his staff. Jacob had a deathbed experience. And would you look at verse 31? It says, he what? He ended his life, if you will, in worship. Um, I don't know how many people 
could end their life and we know that he's going to do a little prophecy and stuff but will your life be ended will, will it come to an end in worship I sure hope so because when you close those eyes if you're a Christian you're going to wake up and you better get ready to worship will I dance when I'm before him will I be able to even speak at all I can only imagine what that day is going to be life like when I worship my king. He ended his life in worship. You know, it's not how you start, but it is how you finish. And I pray you would finish well. This is my final thing for tonight. And I want to read a personal message from Darlene Martin. This is a record of the memorial service of Dr. Walter Martin, one of my great heroes. He died in 1989. I think he was 60 years old. His wife came up to the podium and read the following words. On the morning of June 26, 1989, Dr. Walter R. Martin, founder and president of the Christian Research Institute, died peacefully at his home in San Juan Capistrano, California. And I just want to pause here for a second and say that um, we have two memorial services this coming weekend, one for Clemente on Saturday morning and one for Jim Gromas on Sunday afternoon. And please, if you can be part of those, please do. A memorial service was held for Dr. Martin, as I mentioned, June 29th. The service featured tributary comments from family, friends, and CRI personnel. It was a service that honored Walter, yet also brought great glory to his beloved Savior. A highlight of the service was when Darlene Martin, Walter's wife, shared her thoughts with the congregation. Her comforting words are recorded below. She said, On behalf of my family and myself, I want to thank you all so much for being here at the homegoing and celebration of Walter Martin. I awakened early Monday morning to find that he was not in bed. I went to the next room to see if he was okay. I found Walt on his knees there. My thoughts were, can you just say amen and come back to bed? But after gently touching him on his shoulder and calling his name, I realized he was no longer here, but in the presence of the Lord. Walt was often up in the middle of the night, And I was many times awakened to the sounds of his praying quietly or reading the scriptures in the next room or jotting down notes for a sermon or a new book he would like to write. He loved the Lord with everything that was in him. It was his life. There was no gray areas when it came to the truths of the gospel, a stanch which which cost him much by earthly standards. But he did not live by earthly standards. His role model was Jesus Christ His constant desire was to be more like him and to do his father's will. God put him where he wanted him to be and he took him home in his time. Walt had been in the battle for almost 40 years. He had fought the good fight. He had run the course and now has laid up for him the crown of glory. We shall all miss him greatly. But his rest is well earned. He is praising the Lord now in his presence. And I'm sure that the Lord has taken him by the hand and said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We who are left will continue to struggle, to win the fight, to run the course. God has set before us to endure until he comes again or calls us home. We must continue to build on the foundation Walt has laid, never wavering from the truth of the gospel, never compromising for the sake of popularity or position. Would you just think with me for a second? This is his wife talking. His wife knew what he was about. 
Walt was constantly aware and grateful to the Lord for what the Lord had done for him and the avenues of service the Lord had made available to him. My prayer is that we would all be inspired by this man's life and ministry to earnestly contend for the faith as he had so vigorously done all the years that the Lord had given to him. She closes, God's richest blessing on each of you. May he give us strength to fight the good fight. And as Walt had often said, I've got good news for you. I've read read the end of the book and we win. (laughs) Praise God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great chapter when we see Israel at the end of his life giving blessings and he's about to give several more and even give prophecy. And Lord, we have one life. Soon it will be passed. Only the things we do for Christ will truly last. Thank you that you've called each of us to that plan to exercise our spiritual gifts, to be a a man or a woman who gives a blessing, who lives a life of blessing. The choice is before us, Lord, every day. Help us to make good choices. Help us to choose the path that you have for us, to engage our spiritual gifts, to walk in the blessing of the power of the Holy Spirit, and to be a blessing to others. If you just keep your head and heart bowed, if you need to do some business with the Lord tonight, if he's let one thing jump off the page or jump into your heart or multiple things, would you spend some time right now with your head and heart bowed before the king who loved you, came into this world to save you, called you to himself and has a great plan for your life? Would you re-surrender to his plans? Would you seek his face Do you ask him to give you the power, the strength, the perspective, the vision to run that race that he's called for you to run with endurance as you look, as you fix or refix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Lord, bless your precious people. And if you don't know Christ or you've been running from him and you want to rededicate your life, tonight can be your night, a new start, a new path. Just say, Lord, come into my life. Save me from my sins. I repent. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to walk with you, to follow you, to trust in you. Please forgive me and give me a new heart and a new start. Lord, may you minister to the saints tonight who just need a fresh touch from you, need fresh grace from you. Whatever they need, just meet them tonight, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.